Yeah, so now we're good to go. You know, there's no real need to do a, uh, a crazy professional intro. It's just, it's not my style. I like to uh, just sit down and have a real conversation. I know we've never met before this. We spoke a little bit um, pretty briefly, but this is just kind of an opportunity to uh, to get to know who you are. You have a your own podcast. Uh, it's doing really well. It's on every platform. It's on YouTube. You're all over the place. Uh, you have a Facebook group that you got going and uh you focus a lot in like recovering from trauma and addiction and and some mental health things that seems to be very prevalent uh lately um it's been my experience that before covid men never talked about it like at all it just wasn't something we were allowed to talk about that always confused me so i started this during a very traumatic period of my life and uh I like to share the experiences other people have had and kind of gain some insight and see if we can't, you know, maybe help some people out along the way as they listen. So, uh, so Sean, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much. Um, let's just, uh, let's just uh, dive right into this, man. Um, let's kind of start with, uh, where you came from, what your childhood was like and, uh, what part of the country you originated from? Uh, so I grew up in Maryland. Uh, I actually recently moved back to my hometown. Uh, if you know a lot about American Civil War history, I grew up in the in in Sharpsburg, which is the home of the Battle of Antietam, and so okay. I grew up in a historic part of of the country, and I really really enjoy history. I I, I see how we how we go back and we we revisit things, right? Like history repeats itself if we allow it and that's my story is history repeats itself if i've allowed it and so i grew up in in maryland in sharpsburg maryland in the backwoods uh, but that was my my young child years my adolescent when i was a kid I, I grew up with my father and my mother in the household but they had a very toxic relationship and oftentimes they got taken out on me and my sister. My sister is 18 months to two years younger than I am. And so at the age of four, I think was the first moment that I, I can remember that was like super traumatic for me. My dad walked in, in the bathroom and I was, I was splishing and splashing all over the place. I mean, kids do that, right? Yeah. Normal yeah. Shit. yeah. Yeah. And he saw water on the floor and, he didn't like it, so he pulled me out and beat me with a belt right there, bare-assed. And so that, amongst other things with my sister, I don't, I didn't really understand like the concept of what was happening until it was much later in life. But things were happening to me and my sister physically that raised a lot of eyebrows. So child services were called. They did an investigation. And they found that my mom and my dad had been abusing my sister and I. So we were removed from the home, put in foster care. And eventually we were picked up by my grandparents on my dad's side. Now, my, now being like picked up by my grandparents on my dad's side, you'd be like, oh, that's great. Well, no, it's not because my dad still had access to us, right? And we were still being seen on a regular basis by my dad, regardless as to what the courts were saying. So fear is used as a tactic by parents right instead of understanding or instead of uh trying other means of punishment and 
I it was always used against me like hey if you don't straighten up like I by, by any means I wasn't a terrible kid I wasn't out there like causing havoc or like stealing shit but it was used as a form of of punishment against me if you don't straighten up if you don't get good grades you're I'm gonna call your dad and he's gonna come and beat your ass well I've already had it happen to me before I don't want to have it happen to me again but that didn't stop my dad from coming by my and it wasn't as bad as as the first situation but it was still pretty bad and so living with my grandparents my my grandmother was was judge and jury and my grandfather was the executioner my grandfather worked at the university of maryland for 25 years in like as an electrician he was a vietnam veteran and the and the marines and so like this man had bear paw hands right and imagine getting smacked by bear paw hands right it don't feel very good I love my grandfather to death. I, my grandmother and I don't have a, that great of a relationship now. And that's because I noticed that she was a, a very toxic individual, very toxic human being. And I don't throw that word around lightly, right? Because we all have toxic traits. We all have toxic abilities. But there are individuals who are just toxic in themselves. And she, sure, yeah. she, had, she had severe narcissistic traits. And it, it was it it was a really bad environment. I got a great education, right? I went to a, a Christian public or a private school. I had a great education, but the home life wasn't great. And so coming to the age of about 11 or 12, my my grandmother and grandfather, dad, mom sat me down and said, who would you much rather live with? Right. Like that's an ultimatum or, or that's a question you shouldn't be asking any child. In your 12, you said? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's, that's and, and, and mind you, like, all, all the family members are sitting in front of me. You don't want to disappoint any one of them, right? I don't want to disappoint my grandparents if I say I want to live with my dad. I don't want to disappoint my mom if I say I want to live with my dad, right? But at the end of the day, I chose I want to live with my dad. And because I had this deep-seated... I had this deep-seated longing to like want to to belong somewhere. I didn't belong anywhere. I didn't fit in anywhere. I felt like I wasn't loved. I felt like I wasn't cared for. I mean, I was cared for and like I had all my needs, but I didn't have the emotional and, and mental needs that I was getting, that I was supposed to get from a parent figure at a young age. So I told him, I said, I want to live with my dad. Now I moved from here, from Sharpsburg, Maryland, all the way up to Erie, Pennsylvania, which is like right on, on Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. equidistance between Ohio and New York. And it was a, a culture shock. I went from country backwoods, everybody knows everybody, right, to the big city living, right? And I had neighbors that were right next to me and kids of all diversity, all cultures. Like, And I'm going to be honest, before I moved out there, I'd never seen a Black person, Hispanic person, none of that. So it was a massive culture shock to me. Yeah, and, Maryland doesn't really seem very colorful of a state. <laughs> well, it depends on where you go. If you go to Baltimore, uh, oh, you yeah. go to like yeah. Hagerstown, some of the bigger cities, but like you, you get into these areas, man, it, you don't really see any uh, pe- people of culture, right? And and so, sure. so it was a huge culture shock for me. And I was raised to be a good Christian boy and I barely went to church when I when I went there. And so like it was... It was a massive culture shock for me. And then on top of that, I'm moving there with my sister and my dad has this 
fucking anger problem. And I don't know that he has an alcohol problem either or a drug problem. I just know that he's angry and he loves to take it out on people. And it shifted, you know, it started with my sister. And he would mentally, emotionally uh, abuse her, call her names, you know, say things. Mind you, my sister is young. Like, I, I'm at the age of 12. She's she's younger than I am. Uh, she might be a few years younger than me. I can't remember. But anyways, she she uh, she's getting mentally and emotionally abused. And then it turns physical, right? Like, it starts with pressure points and, like, smacks on the back of the head. And then it becomes psychological. He shuts her in the room. Like, imagine watching Harry Potter in the opening scene or one of the opening scenes where he's put under the stairs and there's that lock pad that's put on the door. Mm -hmm. That's what was happening to my sister. And I couldn't save her. Like, there was nothing I could do to save her. I'm, I'm this 12-year-old kid against a 35-year-old man. What am I going to do? And so eventually it got to the point where my dad was like, I can't handle her shit anymore. Mind you, she's just a kid. And my dad had no understanding of how to raise a child because he himself was still a child. He just hadn't worked through any of the bullshit. And so out of anger one day, he comes to me and says, your, your sister's not my biological daughter. I had no responsibility to, to her. Right. And I didn't know this at the time at all. And it just, it shook the foundation of, of what I knew to be reality. So he wasn't saying this to be hurtful. He was being factual. He was being factual, but in a way he said it like, it like, because he said it in a moment of anger and a moment to hurt. Okay. Yeah. Right. Like there was a lot of fact behind it, but he said it in a way to be, to be very hateful. Jesus. And it's, it crushed me, right? So he sent my my sister back to my back to my grandparents' house, and for the first time in my whole life, I felt completely alone, isolated, because I, I was living with this man that uh, I was afraid of, and I had a brother, a younger brother, that got more attention than I did, and I was in this new city that I hadn't been accustomed to yet, and life was just rough, and. After a short period of time, that aggression that he had focused on my sister shifted to me and it started, you know, name calling mental, emotional abuse. And then it turned into physical and it got much worse than just smacking on the back of the head. Um, I, I think I was like 14 or 15. And one of the clearest memories I have as a kid, and I've worked past a lot of this shit, but is my dad was a truck driver. So he was gone all week and he would come home. He would get absolutely shit faced from the moment he walked in the door to the moment that he left. And there was, there was, it was a Saturday. We had been out all day, came home. Dad was home. He was drunk as fuck and he got really angry. And I can't remember why, but he grabbed me by the throat, lifted me up in the air and looked at me and said, I'm gonna fucking kill you. And that was the first time that I was absolutely terrified of my dad, that I would actively hide away from him. Because if he's willing to do that now, what's what are the limits? Where, how far is this shit gonna go? And a little bit later on, he would he would tell me, "Hey, go in the backyard and practice falling down." Now people hear that and they laugh, but the reality is, is he's he's gonna beat the dog shit out of me, and he did multiple times. It, it started to become an every weekend thing. He would throw me from fence post to fence post. Now we had a standard backyard, nothing big, standard backyard for for the for the city, but he would throw me from fence post to fence post. I'd hit that fence post, that wooden fence post fall down. As soon as I did, boom, elbow to the back of the head. And then it would go into the garage and he would do now the garage. 
had cement walls. Like it wasn't your standard brick. It was cement walls. So like I'm hitting those walls, bouncing down, boom, they throw baseballs at me. And here's the killer. Here's the kicker is like, he could get away with those things. Cause if I went to say something about it, like if I had bruises on me or whatever, and I said something about it, he could say, Hey, he plays baseball. He plays soccer. He got those bruises from falling down. Right. He had a scapegoat. Yeah. And I couldn't vocalize anything. And I've had many people when I share my story ask, you know, why didn't you say anything to an adult? Do you think I trusted adults after that? Right? Like, who in their right <laughs> mind would? Yeah. No, I'm really glad you brought that up. It's uh, it's crazy just kind of, you know, five, ten minutes into your story. I I hear a lot of parallels from my my upbringing and, like, the, the beatings and everything. And... And even talking to some of my family now, like, they'll ask, you know, like, is this real? You know, because when I was like 18, 19, I was like, fuck you guys. Nobody was here to save me. You know, like everybody knew. And then now I'm in my 30s and I'll have these conversations. They're like, were you making that up or was that real? No, that was real. You know, I'm like, well, why didn't you say anything while it was happening? And when you're 10, 12, 13, whatever it is, I don't it doesn't cross your mind like when you're in it that's just normal at least for me so i was was just very curious if did it even ever actually cross your mind to tell somebody because i grew up playing hockey so for it was my mom's boyfriend who beat the shit out of me so if anything happened it was like oh he plays hockey you know like he's gonna get beat up it's it's easy and uh the idea of me going to school and pulling a teacher aside to tell her that i get beat up was more embarrassing than I was willing to even confront at that point in time. So it's like, that wasn't even an option. Did you kind of face a similar thing or was your kind of ideology a little different? Uh, A little bit similar, but different. You know, if, if I looked at an adult and said, Hey, look, this is happening to me. I knew that he had a pro or I knew that he had, he had an excuse or a reason as to why it was happening. Mm -hmm. And, and or or he would lie about it because that's just who he was. And so for me, it was it was easier just to deal with it and say, fuck it and 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 take it. Right. And we also lived in that time frame uh, of the the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I believe that. Sure. Right. And but I, I absolutely despise that saying. I, I'm going to say that right now. I fucking hate that saying. And I'll go into later on why. But the second thought of it is, is like I started finding places in my life where I could escape and where that shit didn't bother me. Right. Like I'm going to put that on the back burner for these two, three, four hours where I'm in marching band and I'm I'm playing music and I'm focusing on something else. And I'll go deal with that later. And then another place was like if, if shit got just really bad. I knew that I could go to sleep and that was my coping mechanism. Go to sleep, right? If I go to sleep, nothing, nothing can fucking hurt me. Nobody can hurt me. And so that those were my escape was marching band and, uh, and sleep. Wow. That's strange that one of your coping mechanisms is sleep. It, It seems like a lot of people that I've talked to that have gone through similar events is sleep is very hard to accomplish. Just of that fear of, you know, like another traumatic event happening and you not even seeing it coming. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of crazy that you decided sleep was one of the things. Yeah. Do you well, have sleep issues now or oh, yeah. can you just, okay. All right. That makes more sense. Yeah. I have, I have a problem going to sleep and a problem staying asleep. 
right? Yeah. Like I'll stay up to two in the morning knowing I've got to get up at, at five or six, seven. Uh, but I just, I can't shut my brain off. Right. Yeah. Uh, or if I do go to sleep, it's light sleep. Right. So I'm, I'm always fucking tired. Yeah. So you talk, you spoke about, um, always having like looking for something to belong to like a community type aspect type thing Mm -hmm. leading into high school that's kind of where people find their niche and you know kind of start to find their group of people were you able to to find that group or were you like a an outsider type thing like what was your high school experience like both um so i think i think across the board it's socially unacceptable to be in marching band (laughs) um (laughs) you you know you're looked at as the nerd you're looked at as the band geek we all every time that i say i was in marching band the common thing is oh one time at band camp right like that's funny that's funny but for me i started finding music at a young age right so middle school about uh sixth seventh grade was really a a group that i fit into because what did you play uh i started out playing trumpet and i then i played mellophone Okay. which is like a marching French horn. Sure. Uh, I wanted to play drums because I wanted to be in the drum line. I seen drum line, the movie with Nick Cannon. And I was like, ah, this is where yeah. I fucking fit in. But no, um, I, I played trumpet and I started to be, get really good at it. And I really enjoyed it. There was a uh, marching band and all city marching band. So all of the high schools in our city, because they didn't have enough students to do individual schools for the marching band so they just combined everybody into one and they came along did a performance at my middle school they were doing recruiting and i said yeah i want to join and i i I joined um, marching band i played in my seventh grade year into or sorry eighth grade year into high school ninth and tenth grade and i really enjoyed it i fucking loved it for me as a teenager there was no bigger adrenaline rush i wasn't into the party scene I, i wasn't a drinker i didn't have enough free time from my dad to be a drinker or like you know go out and party i i love the adrenaline rush i love to be able to get away from the house for a while we did competitions we did parades we did football games it was it was a blast right i had my individual group of friends but we were all misfits right like we were all misfits you see the wrestling belts behind me i'm a professional wrestling fan i love wrestling not very many people in my high school did so I found the people I clicked with and, but the people I clicked with were outside of my school. And so I didn't really have a lot of people in my school and it wasn't until uh, that, that I associated with or that, that I, I would consider my friends. I wouldn't find out until later that a lot of people knew who I was and a lot of people like liked who I was at the time. I just didn't know. Right. And, and so for me, high school was, I associate high school with marching band because I had a lot of fun. I graduated early. I graduated a whole year early so I could join the army. So is is this something that you knew you wanted to do? Or was it just like you saw an opportunity and, and kind of took it? Or was army kind of something in the back of your head that you had planned on for a while? A little bit of a little bit of everything, really. Uh, 9-11 was an inspiration for me. And I, I know a lot of people say that, and, and it might be a cop-out, but for me it was um it 9-11 was was the inspiration to join the military i watched the towers i watched you know everything in pennsylvania the the pentagon all the fallout i watched the invasion in afghanistan 
I watched the news religiously outside of outside of school. And I, I was like, you know, I, I need to, do, you know, I know one person can't change the world, but I feel this calling to do something that's bigger than myself and serve a purpose greater than myself. Part of my story uh, is in my 10th grade year, my dad kicked me out of the house and sent me back to my grandparents' house. There's a common theme there. My dad doesn't want to deal with it. He just lets it go. Mm-hmm. puts it on somebody else and so I, I moved back down here and i graduated early because i had enough credits in maryland to graduate and so i did and my initial you know this is some some years after 9-11 right 9-11 for me happened when i was in seventh grade and this was some years later in 2006 and my life had changed. Um, I didn't necessarily want to be in the military anymore. I wanted to be a pastor. I started diving into my faith. I, I had a four-eyed scholarship to go to a Bible college in Ohio to learn that, right? Wow. Um, yeah. And I want, that's what I wanted. And I communicated that with my dad. And he said, no, you're going to join the military. And I said, no, this, this is my life. I want to, he said, no, if you, if you go to college, I'm going to excommunicate you out of my family. And so, like, I, dude, I had lost so much. Mind you, I I haven't talked about my mom and my story very often. And that's because when I was 11, my mom walked out on me. Literally walked out um, after after a while. He She walked out, moved. I lost communication with her. And so my mom was never a real prevalent part of my life. So I would lost so much, right? Like, I lost the relationship with my sister. I lost my parents. Uh, I had... I had a strained relationship with my grandparents, my uncle. I didn't have any friends, right, being here. What else can I lose that that I could die, right? Like that that would be it. I could die. But like how much more could I lose before I was willing to just say fuck it? Mm-hmm. Bend to the will. And I did. I, I said, all right, man. So he drove down here from Pennsylvania, drove me to the recruiting station. And that day I signed a contract with the Army. Is there yeah. a reason why you chose the army? Yeah, yeah, actually, it's kind of funny. So I went there with the intentions of signing up to be a Marine. The Marines weren't open. And so the Air Force wasn't open. That was the second option. And then the Navy office was open, right? And so like in the recruiting station I went into is literally like, like Marines, Air Force, Navy, Army, all in this hallway. Mm-hmm. And so the Navy was right across from the Army. And the the Navy petty officer or whoever he was stepped out and was like, hey, let's see if you're smart enough to join the the, the Navy. And I was like, Man, fuck you. Right. Like, if you're going to treat me like that, I don't I don't want any part of it. And when I turned to the Army side, uh, the recruiter as uh, a staff sergeant, she looked at me and she was like, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, that's exactly where I need to be. And so I I joined the Army. Or I signed a contract for the army. I did like a pre-ASVAB test, which uh, if anybody doesn't know, ASVAB is like the pre is is your pre-enlistment test. To, it's kind of like a placement test if you weren't weren't going to college and stuff. Uh, where you best fit in and what jobs you qualify for in the army. Sure. Yeah, it's it, it's crazy how different each branch of the military is, even in the recruiting process and everything. There was a. a a time in my life where I moved out to Hawaii and I was just trying to figure some shit out and wanted to go smoke weed on the beach and surf and found out I had some family out there. So I figured, you know, let's go meet these people. And 
but I had no idea what I was going to do. And like with my life in general, I was 21, 22, you know, just lost and uh, walked into a Navy recruiting office. And I was like, well, you know, I think I had watched like some SEAL Team 6 movie or, you know, something like that. I was like, oh, that looks cool. <laughs> walked into the 30. office. Yeah. <laughs> they uh, they saw my leg, you know, just covered in tattoos. And they're like, no, sorry, we can't do anything. And I was like, oh, well, fuck you then, you know, and just kind of went on my way. But I've told that story to a few people from other branches and they're like, why didn't you just go to the Marines? They would have welcomed you in, you know, like, why didn't you do this? And I'm just like, I, I didn't know, you know, I was just kind of yeah. searching for things. But it is it's always interesting for me not serving, seeing how different each branch is and how you guys treat each other is hilarious to me. One of my very close friends is a Marine. Um, I know quite a few uh, SEALs, my, the person that I call my old man or like the only father figure that I actually had that was positive, he was a SEAL. Uh, they all look at Marines as like, they get the shit. Like they'll get a roll of duct tape, some sticks and four bullets and be like, all right, here you go. And they'll just make it work. Yeah. It's whereas like the SEALs are kind of like hanging in the back and they got the big beards and they're all scruffy. And then the army guys are just like the fucking workers. Yeah. And just you just go and you don't have a choice and you just charge the front line. So it's it's uh it's definitely different to hear everybody's perspective. But before we go any further, I wanted to uh just to thank you for your service. Um some people seem to to take that differently. Um, but I genuinely mean it because at that time in my life, I did not have the balls to do what you did. When I experienced 9-11, uh, I remember I was in like freshman year of high school, looked at it and I was like, oh, well, you know, that's that's in New York. I'm in Michigan. And it, it just yeah. didn't affect me like that. And I had one uh, one teacher who is a, I believe, Muslim, uh, like Muslim American. Um, and he just broke down in tears. And I, I didn't understand, you know, his daughter, his son, I went to school with them. I knew them. They were very white looking. His wife was white. And uh, he just stopped the class and was like, I need you guys to know that from now on, everything's different. Yeah. And we, we were freshmen. We didn't know what that meant. But for him, his life changed that minute. You know, everything went completely different. And so it's 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 always interesting to me to see how people react. And you saw this stuff at a very young age and and decided to run towards the fire, towards a lot of people run away or act like it doesn't happen. Um, do you feel like going through some of your traumatic events and like the violence and things as a child kind of took that fear away from you and allowed you to just run towards the firefight instead of kind of recluse away? Kind of. So there's a weird statistic that 80% of service members have a traumatic childhood. And so. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and but trauma is relative, right? Like if we're going to talk about trauma, trauma is relative. It, and it, a lot of people can, a lot of people fuck around with the, with, with what trauma really is, but it's the body's response to a stressful event. Right. So it's the way your body processes way your, your brain processes it right so like rob if if you and i got into a car accident we we're driving together we got into a car accident your body would process it a whole lot differently than mine so that it might be like traumatizing to you but for me it was like man that was fucking exhilarating let's do it again yeah. right <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so like so 
everybody's like trauma and, and levels of trauma is different. And so, and right off the bat, like I'm going to say my trauma is no better, no worse than the next person down the line, right? Like I'm a human being, my body processes things differently than yours does. And so I will never, and I have never said that my, my trauma that I have experienced in my life, whether it's childhood trauma, service related trauma, combat related trauma, I will never say that it's better than, than yours or worse than yours, because at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's the way that our body body processes it, right? I went through some stressful and traumatic experiences. Fucking who else hasn't? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's one hundred percent true. I uh, I was diagnosed with PTSD about a year and a half ago, and uh, I had re- I basically told them no. I was like, "You're wrong," uh, and they're like, "No, like." Does this happen? Does this happen? When you go into a crowd of people, do you have to like look around? You know, what's in your pockets? You know, and like for me, it's like flashlight, pocket knife, keys, wallet, you know, like the normal stuff. But they're like, why do you have the flashlight? Why do you need to know who's in the room? Why are you trying to see which one's the bad person? And, you know, like, why are you picking up on these movements? I was just like, I wasn't in the military. I don't deserve in a weird, in a weird way of saying this is I don't deserve the label of PTSD because I didn't choose to go into this environment. Um, like the drug related stuff and all of, all of that shit in my life, the alcoholism, and like the chaos that ensues around that. I did choose that. But what brought me to that was the original childhood and I didn't choose that. So it just seemed like it was labeling me as this unwanted thing in out of no choice of my own. And it just took a lot of reading and talking to people and, and realizing that, you know, PTSD can happen to anybody and it doesn't necessarily have to be war veterans. It's just like you said, we all experience trauma different, Um, which, which to me is, is crazy. And it's hard for me to, to, uh, to accept where people are. You know, I kind of that, that that's the hard part for me is like, why aren't you facing this? You know, why are you running away from it type thing? And so I have issues with that. Um, so this conversation is amazing that you're actually willing to dive into some things. I have written down some questions that we're going to get into later that are going to be a little bit deeper. I'm curious if you're willing to answer them. But uh, always let's get back to uh, so you graduated high school. You walk into Army. Um, they're professional. You know, some guidance is coming up, and uh, now you got boot camp. What is that yeah. like? Knowing that you're about to ship out, I'm guessing 17, mm-hmm. uh, right around there. You're gonna ship out at 17, barely have hairs on your balls, and you're about ready to go do some man shit during like this 20 year war period of 9/11, knowing damn well that you could be shipped off to Iraq, Syria, you know, like Somalia, Afghanistan. All these places are just popping off, and you're going there. What is that like getting so, off the bus that first time and going through that process? My very my very first day in basic training was my birthday, July 11th. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, it was happy birthday, kid. Welcome to the real world. Yeah. And it was just like at first like it was it was a weird adjustment, right? Because I I'm now around a whole bunch of dudes. They like to show their dick all over the place, right? Metaphorically yeah. and physically. 
uh, but also you're learning how to kill motherfuckers and this is real like you're learning mm-hmm. how to how like you're learning the trick to the trade you're learning the basic fundamentals of being a soldier and basic training right so like you're learning how to shoot you're learning how to march you're learning how to ruck march you're learning literally how to get in shape your mind and your body to be a fucking killer mm-hmm. and so for me at, at first it was weird adjustment but i was already physically in shape because i was i was doing 15 miles a day running i was fucking in the gym all the time i'm a small guy and i look a little bit small because you can't see shirt but i was i I was a stocky little dude and uh it 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 became easy for me i i was used to the yelling i was used to the screaming this was past the phase where where drill drill instructors drill sergeants could put their hands on you so even then like i could have fucking dealt with it because i already i had already been in that chaos i thrived in the chaos before and i'm thriving now and so I go to basic training. I graduate basic training. And at, I was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which I hate that place. I'll never go back to Oklahoma. Um, but I had to stay there for my advanced individual training because my job was 13 Fox, Ford Observer, which pretty much um, equates to I'm the middleman between between uh, artillery, mortars, jets, and helicopters to destroy targets. So if a commander or a platoon leader wanted something destroyed uh by indirect fire i was the guy that was talking to people walking on the the bombs and and artillery pieces to the targets and we used it quite effectively um and then after i graduated my advanced individual training ait i went to airborne school to learn how to jump out of airplanes and that was fun it was exhilarating exhilarating and i'll be honest rob i am terrified of heights but (laughs) $150 $150 a month is $150 a month, right? Yeah. And and it's it's an adrenaline rush. And I was like, fucking sign me up for more. So when you're doing jump school, what is that? So last year, I, I recently got into uh, skydiving. It's like this mm-hmm. huge passion of mine. So I've been curious about jump school. Is it, are you doing like a low altitude jumps to where the parachutes are ripped as soon as you, you jump? Or are you doing free falls or... What is, yeah, what's jump school actually like? So, uh, yeah, if I remember correctly, it's a four or five week process, four or five week school, where the first week is ground week. They teach you how to land, right? We call it the parachute landing fall, how, how to fall so you don't break something. And then you do tower week, which is you're jumping out of towers with, with a harness on. And then you're doing uh, the following week you're doing um a a bigger tower so you're 200 foot suspended in there they drop you with a parachute that's already inflated and then you land down and then the final week the final two weeks are jumps uh the last week is a makeup and out processing but um yeah you you jump you you jump out of a c-130 c-17 anywhere from 800 to uh 1200 feet depending oh that's low yeah it's a static line jump so you get an eight second free fall before your, your shoot open or is deployed by the static line and you free fall. Um, you, you would do what we call Hollywood jumps, which it's no equipment whatsoever. Um, no weapon, no ruck, nothing. You just jump right out. And then your last two jumps are what we call combat jumps where you have a weapon or a mock weapon. You have a, um, you have a ruck rucksack attached to the front of you and you have to like, you know, jettison those, and continue mission yeah that's 
that's just a lot lower than I thought. So for most people that haven't jumped before, it's been my experience. I don't want to act like I'm some professional or anything, but a traditional like uh, like a tandem skydive that you would go and you know do for like a vacation or something. That's between like twelve and fourteen thousand feet. Yep. So for you're down in the eight hundred to twelve hundred range, if that chute doesn't pop, you have less than seconds to to get your second one to pop and make these decisions is so i'm assuming that's kind of what you're going through on ground training is finding those cords and everything and yep so they you have a reserve parachute in front of you if that one you know your main doesn't open up you got a reserve parachute that's just a rip cord and it inflates in like three seconds and uh you're able to, to control it a little bit but um yeah they teach you about that it and and in regular army we have you know those airborne operations airborne jumps and special forces or in the special forces community so you got special forces green berets you've got rangers seals uh you got your marsoc which are the marine reconnaissance teams and then uh your jtacs and your tac ps those guys they they go they have the opportunity to go through halo school which you think of halo you think of the game but it's, it stands for a high, uh, high altitude, low oxygen. And so essentially you're jumping at a much higher altitude with, with a face mask and you're, you're doing the free fall and you're landing on a designated target area. I've never done that. Yeah. That sounds like fun though. Um, (laughs) If you you enjoy heights and falling (laughs) at a fast rate of speed, sure. (laughs) Yeah, no, it sounds like fun to me, but yeah, I guess for you, it's a little bit different being afraid of heights. Um, the, yeah. the one crazy thing about the the Marsoc you were talking about is I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago and uh, he was saying it's now the Raiders that they've mm. changed the Marsoc into the Raiders. So it's, it's Raiders. interesting to me to how each branch changes things. And yeah. it seems like from the general population's perspective, and I guess I can just speak to from my own experience and conversations I've had, is that the general population tends to believe that the military has it figured out that they know exactly what they're doing why they're doing it it's tested and it's this false belief so that way the general population can feel safe but having conversations with people that have trained in the military been in the military special forces all the way up it's it's basically a sack of shit and they shake it up and they reach in, pull it out and be like, anybody got any objections? You do? Well, fuck you. We're doing this anyway. And that's kind of how training and progress in the military go through. So you just have to learn to adapt on the spot and, and just go through it. Um, so after jump school, did you have any other specialized training or is it just hop on the plane and, and head over? So, so a lot of people have this, have this idea um, that, that once you get out of your training, you're going right over there, right? You're, you're getting in the shit, you're, you're getting your feet and your hands dirty, but actually you have to be assigned to a unit. So uh, there's units all over the place designed to do different things. Their mission is completely different um, than the next unit. So you got your airborne units, you got, you know, the 173rd Airborne Brigade, you got the 82nd. 425 101st used to be airborne but they're not anymore then you got your light infantry units uh so so some of your light light infantry mechanized units uh 10th mountain other you know uh, 101st now some of the other units 
um, as well as as well as units down at Fort Benning, and then you got your heavy units. So you got heavy mechanized units out of Fort Lewis, all over the place. Korea is technically one of them. Uh, and I was because I had graduated airborne school, and my job was was had a small community and a big need. They sent me over to Italy as my first duty station. So I was with the one seventy third Airborne Brigade uh, out of Italy, and that is where my addiction started. All right, let's let's uh, let's get into it. It's, Man, it, I was curious when this was going to pop up since you weren't very active in high school where most people yeah. get their start. So, yeah. so Italy's where shit hit the fan, huh? Shit hit the fan really fast, man. Uh, I, I got there and they, they said, Hey, look, you're in Europe. We follow the laws of the land. There is no drinking age over here. Therefore you can go drink. Like I'm 18 years old. I, I haven't even fully developed my brain yet. I haven't even fully developed, uh, I'm still a fucking kid. Like, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm able to look back and be like, I was still a kid. I was still very adolescent and still immature. Only thing that, only thing that had changed is you put a uniform on me. I went through some formal ass training and, uh, and I know, I knew how to shoot a gun. And so, um, my first weekend there, I drank like I was a professional drinker. Uh, I killed two bottles sitting right there just by myself within a two hour span. And then went out and drank some more. And I, I fully believe where I'm at now in my life that from that very first sip, I was addicted. Point blank period. That mm-hmm. that first that first sip of vodka, I was I was fucking done. I was done for for the remainder of my active addiction. And so uh, there was a five month span where we were gearing up to go to Afghanistan. I don't think that there was a weekend that I wasn't sober during that during that five month span. And so we get on the on the plane over to afghanistan and at first like i was i was working in a headquarters unit where i was being able to see everything from the top down right i was able to see how things worked i was able to see how how ammunition requests work uh round counts how clearance of airspace worked and all that stuff and i was like really intrigued by it but i wasn't doing my job that i was trained to do i was doing the job of somebody at a much higher echelon and I didn't have a full understanding or capacity to understand at a ground level, like how to operate and how to do my job. So I went on leave and I came back and somebody from one of the line units had gotten hurt. And so they needed a replacement for him. They replaced him, but they needed a replacement for that replacement. And that just happened to be me. And so they sent me down. Now, I don't know if you watch war documentaries or war movies, uh, but there was a, a documentary called Restrepo that came out in 2010. Uh, that's the unit that I went to. I'm gonna write and, that down. Yeah, uh, it, it was it was filmed by by Sebastian Younger, the guy who wrote The Perfect Storm. Uh, he filmed it along with Tim Hetherington, and it was a a 15 month deployment. I spent nine months in that location, but it was for for that nine month location. It was some of the wildest shit that I've ever been through. It was a period in time in Afghanistan where it was the wild wild west, right? A lot there wasn't a lot of news coverage on Afghanistan because Iraq was hot as shit at that moment. People mm-hmm. were like all over Iraq, and they just forgot Afghanistan was a real thing. And so we were out there willy nilly. I mean fucking things up where i was where i was located we we dropped like 70 percent of all ordnance dropped in afghanistan that year 
and it was yeah it was insane we were dropping 2000 pound bombs from a fucking aircraft destroying shit like getting in firefights we gotten at least at a minimum five firefights a day and that's not including while we were while we were sitting in our compound like it was just madness all the time right so you take a group of guys that are wound up fucking you know barrel chested freedom fighters all oh, ass actually also that deployment produced uh two three three medal of honor recipients from from my unit yeah one how many guys one, are in your unit uh well so in my in my company it was it was upward of uh 150 200 guys depending okay. uh across the the battalion it was it was probably upward of two anywhere from two to three thousand but uh, yeah, we had three Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, one came from my company. Two came from a sister company. And uh, that 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 deployment was wild. So you were you were in the shit. You you were you were really in it. Yeah. yeah. I uh, so I I thought I I understood, and this is going to be very vague and pathetic sounding, but I feel like. I used to be very against the military to just to be up front. Um, my like biological father found out he was in the military. So I held a grudge, you know, like just being a, this abandoned thing, you know, fuck him. He's whatever the guy that I grew up having my ass get beat by daily. He was in the military. So it just, for me, I had this negative connotation of what the military even meant, you know, and who was being produced by the military. Um, so the, the Navy thing was just a very weird thing for me to even attempt it. But as of like these past few years, meeting some friends that have gone through some experiences and having some conversations, I have gotten a lot more interested and almost ashamed of like my choices as a younger human of not wanting to make those decisions to go help. Um, and so with that, I've, I've wanted to learn more. So I've started listening to like the Sean Ryan show uh, which Ryan's is awesome. Yeah, the, he he does amazing work. He has like these guys on there that are just, you know, top notch quality men that have really seen some shit. And uh, I, th I think it was uh, DJ Shipley. Yeah. And he was talking about you want to know what war looks like? Watch Black Hawk Down. And so I like I thought I had watched that movie. And then just one night I was like, all right, I'll throw it on. And it was just nonstop. And then just last week or the week before, Sean Ryan had a guy that was actually involved in the Black Hawk Down operation or, you know, that day and hearing him talk about it and just seeing that that chaos and what it, it looks like for you, you know, specifically your position, you're going to get this ammo knowing thousands of bullets are coming at you and you still got to go through it because if you don't, the, you're leaving the people that are expecting you to come back. That is a huge pressure and i know you can't go into like every instance of you know like gory detail and stuff yeah. like that and to be honest it, it doesn't really matter it's yeah. but not not to like minimize it but yeah. like we i i understand as a man that you have gone through some shit that may not be very comfortable to talk to or you've kind of blocked out or whatever um but i do also know that you were involved in hell on earth essentially yeah. And you're in hell on earth with people that you formed a brotherhood with, a bond with, you slept in, you know, fucking dirt piles with. And 
the military has one of it does give you guys an amazing sense of humor i will give the military that you guys can have six of your buddies could be shot one's losing a leg and everybody's like covered in sweat and blood and mud but you'll still be sitting there laughing eating out of a bag and you don't even know what meat it is you know but it's you can't tell that you had a shitty day so like yeah. that part of the military i love but with that oh. being said i can assume that you've lost some people yeah. is that something that you that you talk about or is there one specific instance that really hit home that that made you realize that you were in the shit? so uh it wouldn't it wouldn't come until 2012. uh i've been deployed four times total of 43 fucking months deployed to Afghanistan. Jesus Christ, man. I spent most of my career, well, not most of my career, but a lot of my career, probably a third of my career deployed. And um, it wouldn't come until 2010. I mean, obviously, I've I, I, I've lost friends um, along the way, and that sucked, right? Uh, people that I knew that I used to party with, that I used to hang out with, that I had a, a friendship with, but it wasn't until 20, no, it was 2012, sorry. 2012 that I actually seen it with my eyes and that is something that stuck with me for 10 years that um, traumatized me for 10 years that pushed me down the darkest holes that I've ever been in in my life and it, it sucked uh, I'm willing to talk about it I don't give a fuck I'll talk about it yeah let's let's dive into it you said you, right. that's when you saw it what what yeah. was it all right so um Third deployment, 2012, uh, we, we are in southern Afghanistan, Kandahar province. Which, if you know anything about Kandahar province, Kandahar province is the home of the, of the Taliban. That is where they were formed. That's where they originate from. That's where they spawned from. It's also the home of where IEDs are made and dispersed throughout the country. And so our job uh, on that deployment was pretty much what's called route clearance. You go out, you scan the road for IEDs and you dig them up now we were dismounted right so that that means that we're not driving we're exposed to anti-tank we're exposed to anti-personnel um which means like there's a very very good chance that somebody's getting fucked and yeah you're so, walking through minefields pretty much yeah, yeah but on the road on, yeah. on the play on the places you're supposed to you're supposed to walk or you're supposed to drive yeah, we're, yeah. We're... so we're about halfway through a deployment. It is May, May. It's May time frame, twenty twelve. And um, my best friend, his name is Nick Olivas. Nick um was our minesweeper. He was our mine mine hound guy, which minesweepers pretty much. He has a metal detector in front of him, and he's he's going back and forth. And if he gets a hit on on the GPR, which is the ground penetrating radar, they mark it out. They, they get EOD to come out or they get um, uh, combat engineers to come out, dig it up, find the find what the hit was, and then we dispose of the IED. We, uh, we started this week-long mission, and we were like an hour and a half into the mission, and uh, we, we approached this, this compound. It was like a compound and then an open field, right? And tactically, your brain says, do never, never cross an open field because you don't have cover there's no cover no concealment so we're gonna have to go through this compound now i remember everything about this situation i remember everything about uh and that's the thing like with, with trauma is 
a lot of times people that suffer like severe trauma traumatic experiences forget certain things but there's cases of us who remember everything about that situation they were they we we remember taste tell you know taste smell uh what the atmosphere looks at like i literally can envision it as i'm talking about it right and so like there's a compound that has a break in the corner and uh my lieutenant's like hey let's go through there and i just had this like gut feeling i was like hey sir like this just feels like a trap and he was like we'll be okay and so we we start going to the compound i get into the break in the compound mind you like our formation is is our minesweeper the guy that marks the path out for us that's safe to walk and then a um and then a team of a team of guns and then you've got heavy weapons and then us and so like we're filing into this into this compound i get to the corner and you're fucking black smoke everywhere everybody rushes to the corner and there's nick and he's laying on the ground and he is missing both of his legs one arm and uh his other arm that had the that had the minesweeper in it was broken um so at that point he was pretty much a quadplegic uh or quad amputee sorry uh, I remember everything that looks like uh, it. It looked like if you took a fork and you shredded meat, not not like separated it, but sure. took along along the lines and you just shredded it like that. It looked his his legs and his arm looked just like that. Um, the blood all over the place, the smell of burnt flesh. Like I can I can point out the smell of burnt flesh from a mile away. Um, the taste in the air. I remember all of it. And like, you know, we rushed up. He was knocked out at first and then he came to, we had medics. We had three, four different medics on that mission. Uh, two females, two males. And they rushed up and started applying first aid to stop the bleeding. And uh, he woke up and he looked at one of the female medics and he's like, you have the most beautiful blue eyes. And this is why I chuckled when you said that we know how to laugh in stressful situations. Yeah. He looked at, at at her and he said, um, he said, you have the most beautiful blue eyes I've ever seen. And she's like, well, thank you. And then they start, you know, they have to get up in the groin in order to 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 apply the the tourniquets to his legs. Mm-hmm. And as they're digging, he's like, just tell me something. And, and the female's like, okay, what's up? And he's like, is my dick okay? <laughs> and she's like, yes, your dick is fine. And he's like, okay, all right. <laughs> Right. And and so that's that comedy in the bad situations. Now we um we bandage him up, we get him up, and I'm looking around, right? And everybody's pushed up on him, trying to pull security around him, and there's nobody behind us, right? And that is the mo- one of the most vulnerable times that you can have as a service member is when you have zero real rear security. Because somebody can just sneak up on you and spray and pray in your and there's a lot more casualties. Mm-hmm. So I, I walk out the the entrance that we came in. I turn the corner and I see this guy on the road. Now, mind you, the compound's not very far. It's probably 50 feet um, long. And there's a road on the other side. And I see this guy in all white. And he's walking past and he's counting these prayer beads, dude. And like, my first instinct was like, take him the fuck out. Kill him. Because he hurt my friend. Kill that motherfucker. And so I put my, I brought my weapon up and I had it right on his forehead. And uh, the human, the human side of me said, 
He doesn't have a weapon, right? And that's the things that you got to think about in those situations is he doesn't have a weapon. You cannot prove that he did that. You can't prove that anybody did that or, or anybody here did that. You got to let him go. What are your rules of engagement at this point? If they don't have a weapon, you can't pull the trigger. Um, if they if they don't have any bomb making material, you can't pull the trigger. Literally, uh, our hands were tied. But I'm glad that our hands were tied and that I, I, I had a little bit of rational thinking because I would have taken somebody out of this earth that I, I wasn't a hundred percent confident that did something wrong. And so like the angel and the devil, like, you know, we always hear the angel and the devil talk on our shoulders and that was really happening, right? It's like, fuck him. He, he took your friend. Angel was like, you don't know. You don't know if that was him. And the other one was like, yeah, he's the only one fucking here. The angel was like, was like, look, dude, like he could be a, he could be a father. He could be a son, a husband. You don't know who he is, right? He could just be an innocent bystander that heard it and knows that some bad shit's about to come down the pipeline. So he's trying to leave. And so, like, as that conversation in my head is, or that war is happening in my head, I see him turn his fucking head toward me, right? And, like, at this point, at this point, my scope is right here. And my selector switch goes from safe to semi, and, like, I'm about to pull that goddamn trigger, and something in me was like, no, don't. And I put it back, and I lowered my weapon, and I was like, go. And he left. And I'm I'm really glad that I didn't pull the trigger because I don't know if if that guy was was who mm-hmm. did that to my friend. And um, so I come back in. I pull one of the gun teams to do rear security. We get them all. We get Nick put on a stretcher and hauled out so Blackhawk can take him. And uh, he ended up dying on the airplane, on the airplane out. And so I had to live with that uh, for ten years. Uh, there was a lot of guilt and shame around it. There was a lot of regret. Right. And there's regret because right before then him and I got into an argument and um, he was my best, one of my best friends. Right. And him and I got into an argument and I told him to go fuck himself. And it was over something stupid. I couldn't let my pride get away. Right. Like I couldn't let my pride down because I'm a fucking man. I beat the chest. Right. And even before, even before I used to go and tap on everybody's head and say, I love you. I love you. I love you all the way down. Right. That camaraderie, that brotherly love, and I got to him, and I didn't say it. And like that was my biggest regret was saying I don't, I, I don't, I didn't love you right before he passed, right? And and we hear that so commonly in society of of that regret when somebody passes where you didn't get that opportunity to say I love you because you were busy, right? I didn't get that opportunity to say I love you because I was fucking selfish. And because I was angry and and I couldn't let my pride go. And that was something that I held for 10 years. And um, so we get back from that deployment and we get back. I got back from other deployments. I, I used to have pictures of everybody I lost on my wall. Um, and I had a bracelet. And I, I, I didn't process through any of that trauma. Right? I just figured if I put them on the wall, I'll see them there and I'll be able to get over it. And really what that was doing was numbing me. It numbed me to the point where I could look at it and I wouldn't feel anything. But when I took them off the wall and I put them and packed them away in a box and moved and I opened it back up, it was like reopening that wound that was that was already there. Mm-hmm. And and so every time that I, I would open that box, it would 
it would tear open the wound and I would have to revisit that trauma again and again and again. And it fucked me up to the point where like, I just, I, I kept the pictures away. I kept them hidden, hidden in a box that I taped up. And um, so I moved to Alaska and that's where like I was medically retired from the army. But um, the one, one of the things that led me into like, into my therapy was um, I was going through a divorce. I just had a suicide attempt. And I was cleaning my house out and I was trying to like prioritize what I keep, what I get rid of. And I opened up that box again, dude. And it was, his picture was right there with his ID tag that he was wearing when he got fucking killed. And it just ripped me to shreds. And I was like, I need some fucking help, but I don't know how to work through this. And, um, when I got into recovery, I faced that trauma and I can, I can say like, I can look at Facebook now and, and see pictures of him and not get utterly destroyed. I can talk about him and not get shook. I can listen to certain songs. Like there's certain songs that I could not listen to because those are songs that him and I listened to when we were working out or when we were, you know, pre like pre pre mission music. So we listened like Slipknot and Avenged Sevenfold, two of my favorite bands. There's certain songs by them I couldn't listen to, and now I can. And now you know I I can look at myself and 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 know that I'm okay in the place that I'm at because of of the work that I put in to get there. Damn. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's heavy, man. And, and I know that you could probably go on for hours of stories that are very similar to, to the one you just shared. Um, I also know that that's not easy to, to talk about. So, so thank you for sharing that story. Um, I, it, it feels like you kind of, you went straight from, you know, uh, Afghanistan to Alaska type thing. Uh, I was very curious about hoping to talk a little bit about your reintroduction into society uh, post combat. And, and then you brought up Alaska. So, <laughs> so it almost kind of seems like, did you choose Alaska? So you didn't have to deal with a lot of society and you just needed some space or how did you end up all the way over in Alaska? So, um, so when you sign a contract uh, in the army, whether it's your initial contract or other contracts, uh, sometimes you have the option to move places, right? So I can I can have the option to have in my contract, I get stationed at this duty location, right? And they have to honor that contract. They have to find a place available for me and, and put me there. And I cannot be excess. I have to have a spot there. And among other things, you can get a, you can get a bonus for signing on. You could get... Uh, army or unit swag like crazy stuff but um when i when i re-enlisted in 2016 i had just got promoted to staff sergeant which i didn't think i was ever going to make it that far i had been told throughout my whole career you're not leadership material so for me to make it that far i was like good job kid but i did it very spitefully um, but that's a story for for later on um i got i got promoted and so my list opened up to places I, I I could go. And I literally had just like this endless list of places I could go, except for one place I wanted to go, which was Fort Lewis. And that's because my daughter and her mother were were there with her stepdad. And so um, the closest I could get was Anchorage, Alaska. And that was with 425 at Fort Richardson. And I was like, okay, let's, let's fucking do it. We're going to the final frontier. And uh, so I, I, I ended up getting stationed there. I drove from North Carolina to Alaska through Canada, 11 day trip, 
it was wild. Yeah. Yeah, it was insane. Through through January, through winter time. It was it was wild. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And I got there and I was like, okay, it's gonna be a fresh start. Nobody knows me. I didn't know any like I thought I didn't know anybody in Alaska, turns out. I knew people in Alaska that were in the army. So like it was great to like get there and know people, but it was all it also sucked because I had a lot of these people that knew who I used to be and not who I am now. And so reintroduction into society was hard, right? Because I didn't, I couldn't operate as a normal human being anymore because I wasn't a normal human being. Um, there was a lot of triggers that I had faced um, in North Carolina and, and, you know, Italy, North Carolina, and Fort Bragg. I went to every airborne unit in the army and um, I didn't know how to, how to, how to properly process those triggers or how to work around them. Right. So like I started secluding myself, I started isolating, I started uh, not trusting people, you know, and that also is coupled with relationship trauma. So um, I get to Alaska, everything's great for like two months and then we're slated to go on another deployment. So that would have been my fifth. And before you go on any deployment, they make you do this memory test or this, this test that great, that gauges your brain. And so it, it tests your motor skills, your your reaction time, and your short-term, long-term memory. And I failed it miserably. And so when I went up to the front desk after I took my test, this uh, this lady was like, hey, we need to get you in to be seen by a nurse for um, traumatic brain injury. I was like, the fuck is that? Right? Like, traumatic brain injury. What are you, what are you saying? And she was like, let's just go and then they, so much like you when you talk about ptsd i i got sat down and they were like hey uh you have traumatic brain injury and i was like the fuck i do and they were like do you do you suffer from this 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 and just a long long laundry list of things and i was like i do and they were like yeah. you have traumatic brain injury and so i got it in my brain like <laughs> i was dying right and so like my brain went to the worst possible places, which that's what we do as human beings. And so I wanted to fix all of my problems all at once. So I spent six hours every day at the hospital, whether it was in therapy, uh, different forms of therapy. So occupational therapy, speech therapy, um, music therapy, which was a huge benefit for me, talk therapy, going to see my primary care, getting brain scans, stuff like that. And I spent six hours every day for almost a year in the hospital trying to get better. And so because of the brain injury and the severity of it, they didn't want to send me on the deployment, which was cool. All right. Like I got to stay behind and work on myself and fix myself. And that's the first time in my career that I actually focused on taking care of myself because I got to this point where life was unmanageable. I couldn't formulate sentences. My speech was slurred. I was having severe migraines where I, I I couldn't like get up out of bed. I was getting nauseous, all this other shit. Um, my memory was gone. I couldn't remember it. You and I were talking. I could look at your name and I couldn't remember your name. Right. And mm -hmm. then that that's how bad it was. It got really, really bad. And so that that triggered the 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 eyes of the military. And they're like, hey, man, you're unfit to be a soldier now. Like you are. We, we can't do anything with you and so i started facing this thing that i call the identity crisis where i didn't i was losing my career that i had for 12 and a half years my marriage had gone to the shitter um i jumped back into active addiction after being sober for like two years i was drinking all the fucking time and i was just like you know what 
I don't want to be alive anymore. Fuck it. Right. Nobody cares about me. And, and my brain took me to the, those dark places again. Uh, my brain, you know, nobody cares about me. Nobody gives a shit about me. Uh, my kid, she'll be all right. And I, I made a, I had a suicide attempt. I made the plan, executed a plan, woke up in the hospital. And uh, most people will, will wake up in the hospital and be like, I'm so happy to be alive. And I was like, see, I can't even kill myself properly. Right. Like, and, and so I felt like a fucking failure, man. And I got out of the hospital. I went home and one of my, one of my, one of my soldiers drove up to my house and he had heard about what happened. And he drove up to the house and he's like, look, man, I don't feel safe with you being home by yourself. He's like, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. And I owe my life to that man. Uh, he, he took me into his house. He fed me. He made, made sure that I was taking care of myself. And uh, that following Monday, I checked myself into a mental health facility and I was like, something's not right. I need to work on this because nobody just commits suicide and wakes up or attempts suicide and wakes up and says, I don't want to be alive. Right. Mm -hmm. So I spent 11 days in, in, inpatient and a white suit, white walls, white everything. But I learned a lot of good things. And after I got out, I spent 11 days in the intensive outpatient program. I learned a lot of great things and I was able to, to continue on. Right. But through the continuing on and the divorce and all that stuff, I was missing a lot of key vital elements, right? I was missing the self-care. I, was, I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't sleeping properly. I had this identity crisis that I was still facing. I just put it on the back burner because I said I'll deal with it later. I'm a procrastinator. And uh, I got medically retired out of the Army. Uh, instead, of, instead, of, uh, instead of going back to drinking, I started smoking a fuckload of weed. And I was just like, I, I exchanged one one uh substance for another now i don't degrade anybody that smokes you do what you have to do i don't degrade anybody that drinks you do what you got to do homie but i know my problem is substance and i know that i can't like have a substance in my body so i met my my third wife and we 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 had it good um although like i wasn't receiving benefits from the ba they were taking they were dragging their feet and I, I was searching for a job like it's going out of style. And the one thing that I noticed was like everybody's patriotic until it turns time to hire a veteran. Mm -hmm. Everybody's patriotic. Support the troops. We back, you know, we back the troops, support the troops. But when you go to that organization or those organizations that say that, they don't hire. Right. Like, how am I supposed to translate all of my experience into something in the civilian world? It was hard. And so I finally got a job opportunity with uh, an air cargo company in Alaska. And I, I would later find out that the only reason that they hired me, I lacked all the skills. The only reason that they hired me was because I'm, I, I could make them laugh with my interview. And, and that's a shitty feeling, right? Like I, I'm the laughing stock and I'm not even good enough to press a fucking button on a computer. And, and so that beat more into the identity crisis. Cause I still didn't fit in. I, I didn't fit in at work or anything like that. And so uh, I, was, I was still sober at that time. I quit drinking after my suicide attempt and I got to uh, July 4th, 2019. And I made myself, the, or I lied to myself for the last time and said, I'm good enough to drink. Now all my problems in my life were caused by drinking with the exception of the trauma, but um, from, from when I was a kid. And so <laughs> I drank again and 
I told my ex-wife or my at the time wife, hey, I'm just gonna have one. <laughs> one turned into five that night, and I was back to where I was. Full-fledged alcoholic. And um that relapse lasted for nine months. Now I, I've had those periods of sobriety that I was talking about, but I wasn't working on a I wasn't you I wasn't working a program. I wasn't in NA or AA. I wasn't like in counseling. I wasn't taking medication, nothing like that. I was just like, I'm not drinking. I'm good. And for anybody that is an alcoholic or addict that takes their sobriety seriously, like that is very detrimental. That's called white knuckling or dry drunk. I hated everybody around me and I hated myself more. And so uh, December 9th, or sorry, December 7th, 2019 was just like every other day I went to work and I drove home. I had to drive by a gas station in Alaska. They sell liquor in the gas stations, right? It's not a big deal. It's not uncommon. So I walk into the gas station and uh, I had more in my paycheck this week than I did the last two weeks. So I got two bottles of Hennessy instead of one. <laughs> <laughs> and I got home in the driveway before i even got out of the car i fucking cracked that bottle and i drank about half of it and walked inside i didn't have any food in my system now that's not a it's not a cop out but i drank all night and uh, at some point i woke up and not woke up but i came to outside of my house without a shirt on in the middle of december in alaska cold as balls i have no business being outside i walked in my house and i, I was just fucking pumping with rage dude couldn't figure it out pumping with rage i walked in my house and my house is destroyed there's holes in my wall all of my collectible shit that i've acquired over time is on the floor destroyed we're talking funko pops talking wrestling cards like i'm a huge professional wrestling fan and just everything's fucked and i look down the hallway and my wife is on the floor all i know is i'm angry and i need to get the fuck out of there so I grab the keys and I go, smart move, right? Uh, I come to the next morning, I'm about half an hour away from my house. I I call my my wife and she was like, you hit me. And I was like, I don't remember that. She was like, you, you fucking hit me. And I said, I, I don't remember a damn thing past, you know, the middle, you know, part of the night. And so she never lied to me. So I, I didn't have this like reservation with it, but I called the cops and I was like, She's saying that I hit her and, and I need to go to fucking jail. That's a problem. So I met the cops at, at a uh, at a Walmart in the parking lot. They arrested me. It's very classy, right? <laughs> they arrested me and I went to jail. And while I was in jail, I still, dude, I was like, it's everybody else's problem that I'm I'm a fucking alcoholic, right? It's my dad's problem because he's, he's an alcoholic. My mom is a drug addict or, you know, a, a prior drug addict. I have, you know, this hereditary disposition to be an alcoholic. Um, it's my my wife's fault because she could have told me not to drink and I wouldn't have. Or it's my roommate's fault because he decided, you know, he didn't want to choke me out. The reality is that nobody could stop me from drinking. Nobody could. And mm -hmm. I was blaming everybody else for my problem. And I was in there for about 20 days. And December 27th rolls around and... Uh, I'm sitting there bitching about my problems and this old native man looks at me and he was like, they call me Viking in jail. Big view. Makes sense. Makes sense. And he was like, Viking, um, shut the fuck up. And I was like, what? He was like, you created all your problems in your life up in, you know, 
until you accept that you're you're uh you're gonna live like this and you're gonna be back in jail he's like i've been in jail many times you're gonna be back here i've seen people like you all the time and at first i was like man fuck you like i didn't say that a lot but i was like fuck him he doesn't know my life he doesn't know what i've been through and i went back to my cell and i sat down i really thought about it i was like he's right i fucked my life up i'm the only one to blame for this shit and so December 7th, December 27th is the day that I recognize as my my recovery date, I or as my sober date. My last drink was December 7th. And um, weird things happen when you accept and when you start working on yourself. So I accepted that I had a problem and that I created all the problems in my adult life for a majority of the things that I've done or that have happened to me. Um, and I got a, like, as soon as that happened, I got a knock on the cell by the CO and he was like, let's go pack up your shit. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, your bail got posted. And I was like, what? He's like, your bail got posted. We're waiting on electronic monitoring to come and put ankle bracelets on you and then you'll be good to go. And that was the date that I started my recovery. I entered, entered into a therapeutic court, which is like a drug court for anybody who's gotten in trouble that's gone through a drug court. I, I entered into drug court. And uh, it's a veteran-specific one, so I was around all the veterans in the program, and I was held to a high standard. I had to go to AA multiple times a week. Uh, I had to uh, do a UA every damn day. I had to do therapy. I did holistic treatment. I had to do individual and group counseling, and I completed my program uh, October 2020, and getting sober was the best thing that I've ever done for my life. Well, first of all, congratulations on being sober. Um, I myself know uh, May 15th, 2018 for a very specific reason. Um, it seems to be that a lot of people that truly decide to quit, that they have that date. And if you ask somebody, you know, if they say that they're sober and you ask them a date and they don't know, it, it gets a little, a little iffy. Um, so yeah, that, that's the fucking huge thing. You've been through hell, legitimate hell. And uh, yeah, I feel like I understand you a little bit more after this conversation um, yeah. and kind of like what you've been through a little bit and and uh, listening to your show uh, over these past couple of weeks, just trying to gain like an understanding of like the angle that you take life at, it, it makes a lot more sense now. Um, you're definitely somebody that that I would say that I can I respect um, the the decisions you made and the fact that you acknowledged that while you were in a blackout state something had happened and you took responsibility for it instead of running from it like a lot of people would tend to do. Uh, I I I like to acknowledge qualities in people that I see in a, in in you I see a very respectful full man what a what a man is supposed to stand for you know in pride and responsibility in morals and ethics um which is very rare coming from somebody who came from an environment that you came from um so first i wanted to just give you those flowers and let you know that you know that that's your listeners obviously can tell those things i just don't know if people express them to you um during our conversation i wrote down a couple things that I've just been very curious about and, and then uh, can get you out of here. I'm not sure what your time frame looks like, but uh, there's some things that 
just from my own experience of insecurities and kind of going through my lifetime of hearing these voices in my head and and by voices i don't necessarily mean like you know god speaking to me or whatever it's like my own internal dialogue um it wasn't up until it's almost embarrassing to say but maybe two three years ago that i found out that that inner dialogue isn't even me that a lot of times that that how can i word this that uh that feeling of like being unwanted worthlessness you know like an outcast and and all those things of like why even try it's just gonna fail anyway and you know catastrophizing and all these things that we learn through like therapeutic modalities you find out or at least i found out that a lot of that inner dialogue isn't even myself and that it was actually i had believed some of that psychological trauma growing up i believed i was a piece of shit you know being locked up in a basement for days or like violently beaten and like the the beatings aren't even really that bad it's like being eight years old and being like do you want to die or do you want your mom to die you know like one like having to deal with that type of shit you don't know how to i don't even i can't think right now but like you just don't know how to like comprehend those things and so they become part of your inner dialogue from my experience so I've been curious as, as listening to your story and kind of your reintroduction into society and, and things that acted, it almost kind of seems like you took the pattern of your father as a child and almost started to repeat that. Did you, and I don't mean that in an offensive way, it's just that's it's kind of how like it patterns exist in life, unfortunately. Um, you were able to actually recognize it and stop it. But do you have some of that psychological trauma that that acts as an inner dialogue that kind of affects your decisions and your thought processes still? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first off, you said you said I recognize the pattern that uh, my dad was, you know, with my father. I did. And I think one of the scariest things that I've ever experienced that wasn't like paranormal, because I believe in paranormal, but um, that wasn't anything of that nature or combat related was one day I was, I was taking, you know, I was washing my face. I was shaving when I was in the army and I splashed water on my face, grabbed a towel, went like this, looked in the mirror and I seen him staring back at me and it scared the shit out of me because for the longest time I, I had, I was like, I never want to be him. I do not want to run to that. I don't want to be that piece of shit that I was, I was raised with and I was becoming him. Right. And, and that scared the shit out of me. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, I started working hard on, on breaking that, that breaking that cycle, breaking that trauma cycle. Um, but secondly, yeah, I, I had those, in, that internal dialogue uh, at first, it scared me because I was like, I was like, am I fucking crazy? <laughs> right. Cause yeah. society, they tell you, you're not supposed to hear voices in your head. Yeah. Right. You're not supposed to have that internal dialogue. Sometimes that internal dialogue is good, right? Because it, it's a, it's able to help you process things that are happening in the moment. But it's also very detrimental because a lot of the times it feeds into our insecurities. It feeds into our trauma, our trauma responses, right? So a lot for me uh, is was negative self-talk. And sometimes I still have that. I've had it very recently where it's just been like, you're a fucking failure. You suck. You're no good. You're worthless. Um but it's a lot of the way that we perceive ourselves and the way that we perceive 
uh, actions that we're taking, right? And and unless something comes along to to combat that that internal that internal dialogue, or unless we interfere and we say no, that's not true, then that internal dialogue that I've from my perspective that I've noticed is that that internal dialogue, the, that negative self talk, the trauma responses are going to continue, right? Um, for me, one of my biggest insecurities is uh, my show, and, and I'll be just completely honest. Uh, it's not the guest. It's not the people that come on. It's that thought of, am I helping somebody? Right? It, mm-hmm. d- is somebody taking away something from my show that's going to help benefit their life? And I don't get a lot of feedback in that. Right? I don't get a lot. So that the negative self-talk, the negative belief structure that, I, that I've created in myself is like, I'm fucking wasting my time, man. I'm running around in circles. But then I get like, I get people that random people that pop in my inbox, friends that I've had for years or people that I've known from years from Facebook or Instagram. They jump in there like, hey, we've watched every episode that you have and it, it's helping us. And that is that that food that I need for my soul, mm-hmm. my, my brain to say I'm making a difference. And um, whether it's one person that that's that's all I care about. And. And so I had this thing and I posted it up a few weeks ago and I shared it actually it was, it was a memory of mine from last year. And I said, I don't want to be famous. I just want to help change the world. And that's my goal. I don't fucking care to be famous because when you become famous, you kind of start disconnecting from the people that help get you there. And for me, I don't want to be famous. I just want to change the world, whether it's one person at a time, whether it's one episode at a time, that's my goal. But yeah, that negative self-talk comes in really big for my show. Um, but I know it's helping people. So combating that that thought process with, hey, it's it's helping somebody. It's it's changing somebody's life. You just got to keep on this path, right? And there was even an episode that I recorded not too long ago. It got posted in August. And in that recording, I said, I, I said, you know, I'm thinking about shutting the show down because I don't feel like it's helping. And my guest in that show was like, we need people like you out here. And and that was like just very all striking to me that somebody that I don't know that I've never met in person before that's in recovery said that to me and I was just like all right that was the the that was the resurgence that I needed and yeah. and and the the filling the filling of the cup that I needed to to change my my thought process and thought pattern. Yeah, it's you're actually the first person that I've that I've interviewed or, or spoken to that's been able to admit you know that like the the show brings on insecurities i know for myself just this thing like i got like three cameras pointed at me right now and it's it's a it's for me it's a confidence thing i don't have the confidence to uh to hold a phone in front of me and walk around in public and have conversations that i'm going to post later to try to expand the show um i don't have the confidence to you know, reach out to people that may have like higher analytics than I do to, to see if they'd be willing to come on and have a conversation. Uh, but when I do and I get some people on, I'm very humbled by who they are. And then I get to have these amazing conversations like the one I'm having right now. And it's just kind of become something that I've taken as like a personal thing. Like it doesn't matter how many people see it, it, it's helping me. And then in that thought, in that kind of change in process, I have been getting more people reaching out and saying, you know, like, it's crazy that the way you talk, you're openly willing to admit, you know, certain things and insecurities and stuff that as men or as humans in general, we just don't talk about. 
Um, yeah, so definitely your show needs to keep going. Um, it's not something that I would say that you need to quit by any means. If anything, I'd say hit the gas a little bit more and, and see what you can turn it into because this podcasting thing is it is for everybody. There's room for everybody to do this stuff and there's conversations that need to be had so that way other people know that it's okay to have those conversations. Um, I'm going to take that and lead that into this last little portion. Um, I'm curious where it's going to go. And in order for me to do that, I need to admit some things as well. Um, you had spoke about your mother and I have a lot of trauma surrounding my mother and the relationship that I have with her. Um, it's very hard for me to be laying on the ground covered in blood, having a 35 year old man just pounding on me, looking over and seeing her not protecting me and instead turning around and walking away so she doesn't have to see it. I've, I've witnessed that too many times. Um, I've had the police show up and be told that, oh, I've, I have a stepson too. I understand, you know, and not having the support of my mother coming in and, and backing me up. And she's since, you know, like had, she's, her life is her life. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to talk shit about her. Um, it's very hard for me to be positive about her. Um, but in saying that, I do have to acknowledge that the relationship that a boy has with his mother is extremely important at a very young age. It is, that is our safety blanket. That is where our emotion comes from. That's where we learn what love, compassion, empathy is. Uh, the father is supposed to be our teacher. Our father is supposed to be the one that guides us through hard things, teaches us how to get over obstacles and accomplish goals and achievements. And so you had spoke earlier about you don't have a very good relationship with your mother and then you kind of dropped it. But you also prefaced this interview with saying that I can ask you anything. So I'm wanting to see if you're willing to dive into that just for a few minutes as to not specifics that that's your that's, that's your story I, I don't need to know specifics i'm just curious as to the modalities or how you have navigated that relationship to be able to draw healthy lines for yourself um, i've heard the term you know love from a distance that type of thing um, create healthy boundaries things of that nature i'm just kind of curious as to how you are personally able to handle that trauma from her specifically if that makes yeah. sense yeah so um you kind of hit nail on the head man love from a distance create healthy boundaries mm -hmm. um my relationship with my mom is non-existent now now that doesn't say that i haven't had a relationship with my mom but it's non-existent now it was non-existent after this last divorce that i went through and just things that happen in, in, in our interactions back and forth and the role that a mother's supposed to take and the role a son is supposed to take uh, was severely blurred. And I decided the best thing for me is to love her from a distance, create healthy boundaries and not give her a space to communicate with me. Because communication between her and I has not been great and it never will be. But that's not my responsibility to gauge that. So um, 
So my mom re-entered my life 2011, no, 20, uh, 2009, probably about 11 years after she walked out. And she just randomly hit me up on Facebook one day. She said, hey, um, it's your mom. I'd like to talk to you. If you don't want to, I understand. And like the point in my life where I was at, I was like, you know, I can either tell her to fuck off or I can tell her, you know, let's let's figure this out. And, and I, I gave her the option to figure it out. And our relationship started out great, but I started noticing things like left and right about the way she, you know, interacted with me and interacted with my sister and how she treated the both of us. And I vocalized like how I, I, I didn't like that. Right. And, and it, it would turn from, it would, it would flip this, she would flip the script on me and make me out to be a bad guy. And I didn't like that. Right. Take personal responsibility for the way that you act. And then one of the other things now, I also have a great relationship with my father now. He's like my best friend. I was That's able amazing. to work through, I was able to work through all the trauma. And one of the things that actually like helped that out a lot was I got the perspective. Now my mom and my dad, they're not together. Uh, but I got the perspective of what happened in my childhood from both of them, right? Because there's a lot of unanswered questions. I got in the spirit of my life. I said, what happened? And I asked the both of them and my dad took responsibility for everything that he did wrong. And I mean everything. He got to that point where he was like, this is what I did wrong. This is why I did it. You may not like the answers, but it's the truth. Holy shit. From the perspective of my mom, she blamed my dad for everything. It took zero accountability and responsibility. So I said, this conversation is done. I know I need what I need to know. And so... And later on, if you want to know about what my dad said, I'm willing to talk about it. But um, it got to this point where my mom just degraded my dad every single time that we would talk. And I said, look, this is a relationship between you and I, not you and me and my dad or you, me and my sisters between us. And it just never stayed that way. And then she started because of my certifications through the state of Alaska, she started treating me as a counselor. Right. Like I'm your son. I'm not your fucking counselor. Right. You don't trauma dump on me. You don't ask me relationship advice. You don't do you, you, you at, you talk to me about what is going on in your life, your successes, some of your failures. I talk to you about my successes, my failures, check in with you uh, once a week, once or twice a month. Sure. But you don't trauma dump on me because you and I have some fucking trauma. And uh, it just got to a point where she started treating me as her counselor, not as as her son. And when I when I vocalized that in a very healthy and respectful way, the backlash that I got into it, I just received. I, I I felt like it's not even worth it. I can love her from a distance, but this relationship is going to be traumatic and toxic until the day that she dies. So I just said, uh, I said, I'm a lover from a distance. I'm going to make amends with her through a note and I'm not going to send it. I'm just going to release it out into the universe and it is what it is. Yeah. I, uh, that, so to be honest, that was kind of more of a question for me. Um, just kind of how I dealt with things is not how I would do them again. Um, for me, I sent one text and this was about a year or two ago. I had found out that, you know, just, it doesn't matter what I found out, but like, I just found out some stuff and it was just the last 
thing that I was willing to to hear about this person. So I sent her a text and I was like, you know, if you have anything of mine, pictures, whatever it is, burn it. Um, this no this number will no longer ring if you call it. Um, you only have two sons now. I want nothing to do with you. This has nothing to do with my feelings towards you. I love you as, you know, like the person that brought me into this world, but your personality and the human that you have become is no longer safe for me to be around. So I'm ending this relationship. And, you know, I believe I even said, you know, like if something along the lines of like, if I see your boyfriend, you know, the guy that beat the shit out of me growing up, don't be surprised if like you see him in the morgue with a piece of steel sticking out of his head, something along those lines. Um, you know, so you can kind of assume where my head was at in that scenario. Um, so I've just been very curious as to, to how other people would even handle that situation. And I, and I don't think that there is a right answer. Um, I, the, it's when you deal with like family trauma, it's, it's personal, you know, um, I know you were willing to go in to talk about like what your dad said and everything. And I, I respect that and appreciate that. I just kind of feel like that's, that's kind of, that's more of a, your story type thing, you know, like that's, that's your relationship. Um, I can, I get it. I get a sense of, you know, what that conversation went like. And the reason why I said, Oh shit, when you said your dad like stood up and acknowledged everything that he did is that's not my experience. My experience is what your mother did and blaming the other person. And it's very hard for us as a society to accept that we've done wrong because after we accept that we've done wrong, now we've labeled ourselves along with the label that we believe other people have on us has become a reality. Yeah. Um, so that's a very, very difficult situation to go through. Um, you've been through a shit ton. I know we could probably continue to talk for hours and we may even do a second version of this or, you know, you want to keep chatting like that'd be fucking amazing. Um, the fact that you're willing to have your show and come on and do these things is I, you got to keep going. You, you really do. It's not something that you can, you can stop. It almost seems like it's a responsibility because you have a way of being able to communicate that a lot of men wished they were able to vocalize. Um, you know, for myself, I'm going through a lot of like trauma therapy and things of that nature right now. And things will come up to where physically I feel it. And it's just yeah. like, I'll turn almost like start crying for no damn reason of just like, nope, this isn't it. And I have to like snap out of it and change subjects and everything. So for you to have worked through all those things and be able to then share them with, you know, whether it's two people or a million people, you know, like that's, that's fucking amazing, dude. It's very commendable. Um, so thank you for your show, for, for being who you are as a human and for acknowledging your mistakes and fixing them and, and help guiding people down that road that may not know that that path even exists. Um, that's a, that's a huge thing that you're doing. Um, your show is getting bigger with every episode. You can see the numbers and, and your guests and the conversations and just everything is, is getting bigger and better. And you're kind of like refining things a little bit. 
And in this podcast world, it seems like a lot of people will want to do it because they think they're going to be Joe Rogan in 60 days. And that's not how it works. <laughs> Just not how it works. It's, it's you got to do it more for you. So the fact that you're willing to put yourself out there is fucking dope, man. So thank you. Um, other than that, let's, uh, Let's just end with talking about your show for a couple minutes on, on kind of where it's going, um, how you format it, and uh, kind of what you specifically talk about within your show and where people can find it and find you online. All right, cool, cool. So, yeah, uh, my, my show is called Recover Out Loud. You can find me literally everywhere. Uh, I just got put on iHeartRadio, so I'm really fucking happy about that nice uh yeah so that covers all the major platforms and now my show is geared toward interviewing people that are in recovery for mental health and or substance abuse and it's just it's been this wild journey right and when i started i didn't have aspirations to be big and i still don't i have aspirations to help people and and to show people that they're not alone right because i think a lot of time when we get into these into these mental health disorders or these these addictions or even in early recovery we feel like we're alone right like i know that i felt alone when i first got sober i was like i mm. have no fucking buddy in my corner but the reality is, is we have there are so many people in this world that are just like the like us i've met people from australia england south america even in the americas right people from around the world that suffer from the same things that we do and it's all about making that connection, that human connection is, is what, and, and sharing our story and being open and being vulnerable is, is the one thing that inspires me to keep doing this. Because at the end of the day, like I said, I'm human and I have those, those fallible thoughts. I have those negative intrusive thoughts, but at the end of the day, if I'm helping somebody, that's what matters to me, right? The message of, of you know, getting out there and talking about these things that we wouldn't talk about in normal circles and, and getting uncomfortable because there's only real growth through being uncomfortable. And uh, the second show I just started up uh, debuts November 6th. I haven't talked to, well, I, I talk about it on my social media, but not a lot. Uh, it's called beyond the veil. And it, it focuses on people that are in the paranormal field and the supernatural field. So psychic mediums, paranormal investigators, uh, demonologist, which is, you name it, you name it. If they work in the supernatural, I'm interviewing them. And um, I actually have somebody that's very big that's been on TV that's going to be coming on the show very soon. And I'm excited about it. But um, yeah, I just love, I, I like human connection. If if I can if I can connect with people on a level with paranormal, nine chances out of 10, I find out that they're either in recovery or they've suffered mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. So there's that additional, you know, additional layer to human beings, right? And I have some people that are going to be on my show for Beyond the Veil that are going to come and share their story on Recover Out Loud. And it's just awesome. It's amazing. And and it's empowering. And I feel great. You can find me literally everywhere. I'm, I'm well, except for Twitter, because that's a nasty place. Um, I'm on, I'm on, uh, I'm on Facebook. You can find me under my personal page, Sean Young under recover out loud podcast page uh beyond the veil podcast page you can find me on instagram under all those you can find me on tiktok at the beard of maryland all right i will put all of that in the show notes i have a link tree i will put here. that in there as well <laughs> uh, make it make it even easier link tree is a lot easier than just posting everything up but 
All right, man. We've been going. It's already been an hour and a half, 45 minutes. I feel like I there were so many areas that I wanted to dive into. I just feel like it would have been like an eight hour long conversation. Um, so maybe we'll have to do this again sometime. But Absolutely. again, thank you. You this I like to uh to feel like I may be helping somebody else out in, in doing this, but in all selfish reality, I started this for me to see how other people process things. Um, so even in just having this conversation, it's, it's helped me. I, I know I've gained some insight. Um, it's listening through other people's experiences is something I wish I would have learned as a kid, you know, like, don't touch that. It's hot. Well, I still got touched it anyway. I wish like yeah. that would have clicked when I was fucking six, you know, instead of 36, like How that can it actually be. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that one lesson. So, so getting to share other people's experiences and have these conversations, it, it opens up my mind to other possibilities and realms and, and uh, other people's experiences. So I greatly appreciate the time I've had with you today. I'm going to try to see if I can't send as many people over to your show as possible. And uh, I'm sure we're going to, you know, talk again in the future. And if you ever just need somebody to chat with or whatever, hit me up. Uh, this has been an amazing fucking conversation and I'm very grateful we got to do this. So thank you very much. I'm grateful too. I'm always grateful. Thank you, Rob. All right. And with that, we'll just, uh, we'll call it a show, hit the red button and uh, see you later, man. It was a pretty- Amazing show. Thank you.